Uh, recently, my wife and I celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. Uh, to many of my friends, this seemed like quite uh, the accomplishment. But I think that for some of you in this room, you might feel like we are just getting started. Uh, and I think looking back on 10 years of marriage, it's fair to say that it was a bit bigger adjustment than I was expecting it to actually be. Uh, I, I knew that the Bible said things like the two should become one and things like that, but I didn't really have any idea about how my marriage and union to Fiona uh, was going to change me and my life. Uh, I had to do all the normal things a husband in my generation has to do. Uh, I had to learn how to fold the towels in the way that my wife wanted them folded. This has changed over the years. It's very confusing if anyone cupboard size and that sort of stuff. I'm still learning that my wife uh, doesn't like dishes being left in the sink overnight uh, that have to be washed first thing in the morning. Uh, I've learned the hard way that my wife's delicates could be destroyed with the wrong washing machine setting uh, and that the button on her favourite jeans most definitely cannot be fixed with a hammer. It seemed like a good idea at the time. But most of all, I've had to learn how to appreciate the responsibilities of marriage. I've had to learn that my union with Fiona means that there are all sorts of responsibilities that come with it. I have to love and care for her even when it's hard and she doesn't deserve my affection. And I've had to learn to love her when it was easy and she was worth it and I selfishly wouldn't give it. But more than that, I've had to learn that these responsibilities are not burdens despite the fact that sometimes it can feel that way. Rather, they are wonderful and good things that are part of the purpose of my marriage in which God uses to grow and build my character. These are lessons that, of course, I'm still learning. I'm not claiming to have all this down pat. But I know now that out of my union defeat, my life has changed and what is expected of me. So too, in our union with Christ we must change and realise that new things are expected from us. And today in our passage, we'll see how some of this gets worked out. So I do encourage you uh, to open up your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 28, so you can read along with me. Uh, Like I've said, Paul has just finished the main body of his letter to the Thessalonians. He's provided them with comfort in their eternal destiny and encouraged them to wait confidently for the coming day of the Lord. And now he turns to his closing exhortations. This is common for Paul to do at the end of his letters. Uh, Sometimes it can feel a little bit like the giving of the law in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, but it's not quite like that. There's more to it. And he begins these particular closing appeals with reference to the fledgling church's leaders. And he describes them in three ways. They are those who labor amongst them, those who guide them, and those who teach them what to believe and how to live. And Paul is clear that these people are to be given honor and esteem and affection. And he's equally clear on the reason that they are to do this. It's because of the job that they are performing. It's not because ministers are more important or because they are better, or because they have some sort of special status. It's because of the service they perform. The New Testament is really consistent in this teaching. The leaders of the church, uh, more specifically those who minister in the word, 
are to be accorded a particular respect for the sake of the work that they are doing. So 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in the word and doctrine. Or with a slightly different emphasis, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Indeed, James 3 says that not many of us should become teachers because they will face a greater judgment. So ministry of the word is serious business. And in love and affection for the seriousness of the work that they do, we should show great affection and esteem for those who minister amongst us. And there's a hint here as well that if we don't do this, then there'll be strife and contention amongst the church. I don't think it's too hard to imagine how things could end up that way. If we don't respect the person who has been charged with teaching us, and who indeed at times must challenge and rebuke us, then we are very likely to become quarrelsome and find ourselves in conflict. And here Paul certainly seems to warn against this. So read with me verses 12 and 13. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Next, Paul moves on from this topic of warning and exhortation to another specific area of concern. The focus this time is on three groups of people who we could say are all struggling somewhat in their faith, and then he gives two more general exhortations. For each of these different groups, he offers a different way that the church in Thessalonica can love the people around them and among them. First off, his concern is for the lazy and wayward people among them. They to be cautioned about the evil of their ways. We know from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that laziness was a problem among some of the believers in Thessalonica. But Proverbs gives us a clear picture of the danger of laziness. Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 20 verse 4 says, A sluggard does not plough in the autumn, he will seek at harvest and have nothing. So the lazy among them are to be warned about the danger that they are in. Next he addresses how the church is to act and respond to those among them who are faint-hearted and hesitant. These people are to be reassured and emboldened. They are to be encouraged. And the source and content of our encouragement to them is the truth and hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope found in Jesus makes the hollow platitudes of trite greeting cards sound empty and shallow. For those amongst us who are scared and fearful, there is great encouragement in the gospel we have so graciously been given. And then we have a command to help the weak. Now I've got to say, this isn't quite the same as just providing a helping hand or you know, opening the door for somebody if you see the chance. The word in the Greek has this sense of, of holding firm to something or being devoted to it, cleaving to it, is a translation that's sometimes used for this word. 
you know, our English word help, I don't think, quite conveys that meaning. It's not an occasional, opportunistic type of helping someone. It's an active, engaged, and intimate idea, grabbing hold of those who are weak. Really be connected to them. Know what they need. Be committed to upholding and serving those who are weak, whether as those who are spiritually or physically needing assistance. And then following from this, we have a command to be patient with everyone. Let's be honest, it's not easy to deal with people who were sinful or struggling. People who are difficult to deal with. People who need help. They can be draining even if the circumstances they're in aren't really their fault. And so we need to be patient. Not a tapping our feet, looking at them like they need to hurry up, get on with it, get your act together sort of patience. But be long-suffering with them. To share in the pain of their weakness. And finally, Paul wants the Thessalonians to understand how Christians are to respond to evil. It is not by responding to evil with evil, but rather always trying to do good. First to each other, but also to everyone that they engage with. And to sort of show this, he gives two contrasting imperatives. On the one hand, they to make sure that they do not to respond, they do not respond to the injuries done against them by seeking vengeance and injury in return. On the other hand, they are actively to seek to do good to both other Christians, but also whoever may be among them. So verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Paul now turns his attention to our attitude and what it's to be like in general and at all times. And quite simply, we are to rejoice. We are to be joyful always. This should be our distinctive. It's one of the major themes that you see in Paul's closing exhortations in his letters. So in Philippians, in chapter 4, three times he says to them, rejoice. And alongside this, we have this theme of a desire for them to be praying constantly. And so he exhorts them to pray at all times. We see the same thing in Romans 12 and Hebrews 13, where there's a similar phrase that they should be praying constantly at all times. I, I think that this is something that you know, we need to be reminded of, that our prayer life is to be constant and linked in everything that we do. It's not just something that we do on, on Sundays during our, our couple of prayer times or, or before meals or some other formal occasion. It's got to be a continual part of our lives. One, one of the greatest blessings for me as a parent, as a dad, is just praying with my kids uh, through the day. And, and it's funny, they don't always want to do it, which is, I, I don't always totally understand. You sort of say to them, you know, how about we pray, that, pray about that or something like, no, I'm like, I don't understand. I never so quite get like what, what's the problem? Why, why don't why don't you want to do this? But um, you know, it's one thing that we're trying to instruct them in that you know let, let let's pray for this thing that's bothering us. Or you know, the one time they will always take prayer for is if they've got like a little tiny thing on their finger or something. Do you want Daddy to pray for it? <laughs> but it, we, we should, but this is the attitude. It's not just something that we do on formal occasions, but something that's part of our daily life that that we bring to God constantly. That we can always be talking to him and bringing things to him. 
And closely related to this is the command to be thankful for whatever is taking place in your life. Not just praying when things are hard or difficult or where we've got a problem, but remembering to thank God for each of the good gifts that he gives us. And again, it's a great thing that, that, you know, when my kids are like, you know, Daddy, do you know who gave us that? God gave us that. I'm like, he sure did. Praise God, my kids are sort of getting it. But it's those sorts of things that we want to encourage, not just you know, for those of us with children, but all of us, with our friends, with our family, whatever that may look like, to be praying and thanking God constantly, whatever circumstance you are in. And this is the other part, right? Even when it's hard to be thanking God, whether you're the single mother dealing with the crying child for the fifth time in the night, or the married man who's stressed and in danger of losing his job, or the elderly woman who's in constant pain, as the curse of death upon the physical things of this world takes its toll. And we can thank at all times, even in these hard times, because the source of our thankfulness is the hope and promises that we have in Christ. That he is returning and that all things will be made right. We can grieve and we can cry it out and we can cry out in anger. But we must always remember to be thankful for the hope that we have in Christ. Christ. It is the cure for bitterness in our souls. So it says in verse 16 through the first half of verse 18, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Next, Paul gives us what I think is is the key point for understanding how we can live out all these things even when they can be so difficult to do so. These are things These things are what God wants from us because we are in Christ. We're in him. The the phrase that Paul uses here is in Jesus Christ, and it fits sort of under this broad theological category of union with Christ, that we're part of him, that we're in him, among him, with him. There's all these different prepositions that get used, but it's this big, rich theological term. Those who believe in Christ are a part of his body. We're a part of him. We're united to him. And this union determines our salvation, our justification, our redemption, our adoption, our glorification, all these big words. And and it doesn't really matter if you know what each of those things are. But know this. If you believe in Jesus, then you are joined to him in such a way that all of the blessings that are Jesus's from the Father are yours as well. And this has got to affect the way that we live. Being joined with God means that we are not to live in the darkness, but in the light. And this looks like all those things that Paul is exhorting the Thessalonians to be and to do. So it says in the second half of verse 18, For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, in your union with Christ. Next, Paul exhorts the Thessalonians not to restrain or quench the Holy Spirit. In line with this, they are not to despise the divine word from God that they've been given. If we deny the truth of the Bible, then whether we realize it or not, we are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. Instead, we are to put all things to the test. The things that we hear which we find to be true and from God, according to his word, we are to hold on to. But the things that are evil, we are to reject and let go of. Verse 19, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. 
Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. This brings the main collection of imperatives in this little passage to a close. And he now turns to a prayer of a benediction, which he pronounces over the Thessalonians and those that will hear this letter. The, the, the idea of a benediction, it's this ancient idea of these words that you would speak out of someone before they go. These words would go with them and follow them. It's why, you know, oftentimes even in service today, we, we finish with a scripture, something to, to take with you as you go. And so it's interesting that in chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, Paul prayed a very similar prayer for the Thessalonians. And he essentially asked for the same things for them in that passage as he does here. And I think this gives us a real picture of his heart for them. You might remember that Paul needed to depart from the church in Thessalonica prematurely because of the persecution that he faced there. He was only there for a little while before he had to, to move on for his own safety. And so since then, he'd been worried about the Thessalonians' faith and, and conduct, as we learnt in chapter 3. And in this prayer, he repeats his desire that they might be made holy by the Lord. And it's, worth noting, and it's worth noting that it is God who makes us holy in every way and in our entire being, spirit, soul, and body. It's, it's particularly important for us to note this in light of this long list of commands that Paul has just given. Because if we're not careful, then we can mistake Paul's concern that we become holy and the fact that he gives us a series of commands as some sort of evidence that it's our works that make us holy. But we must remember that every good gift comes from the Lord, including our ethical transformation, making us more and more like Jesus. I'm made blameless on the last day because of the work of Christ, not because of my own works. Even the very obedience that I perform when I do obey the commands from God, it's out of faith through the Holy Spirit working in me. And we can have every assurance that he will make us holy and blameless because it is what he promises us. And whatever God promises us, promises us, we can trust because he is faithful. So we read in verse 23, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you, make you holy through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Finally, Paul finishes with three more imperatives, although I think his tone softens a little bit here. As a firm believer in the effectiveness of prayer, Paul now asks that they pray for him. Just as he told them that he always prays for them, so now his desire is that they would have the same heart towards him. And he encourages them to be welcoming to any and all believers with a mark of affection and, and familial connection by saying to welcome or greet believers with a holy kiss. And finally, with an appreciation for the importance of the words that the Lord had given to him to speak to all the churches, he urges that the Thessalonians take this letter that he has written them and pass it around to show the other believers. Paul understood his apostolic authority, that these words that he'd been given were from God and for the people, and he wanted to see them enriched by it. So we read in verses 25 to 27, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. 
And in typical fashion, Paul leaves the Thessalonians with a blessing that the grace of Jesus be with them. So verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So we've heard from this passage this morning a lot of really practical instructions on how we are to live as Christians. And ordinarily, you know, when we get done with going through the passage, we sort of ask ourselves, well, how does this apply to our life? How do, how do I make this fit into to what I'm doing and how I'm living? But this entire passage has been about applying these things to our lives, right? Like these are reasonably concrete commands, you know, and, and let's face it, there is a long list of them. So again, respect your leaders, warn the idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one pays back wrong for wrong, be joyful always, pray at all times, be thankful in all circumstances, do not restrain the Holy Spirit, do not despise inspired messages, put all things to the test, keep what is good, avoid every kind of evil, pray for us also, friends, greet all the believers with the kiss of peace, I urge you by the authority of the Lord to read this letter to all the believers. There's a lot there, right? I mean, it can seem a little overwhelming, yeah? Just like maybe even a burden to us. Not unlike how I felt at different times in my union to Fee, that you know, sometimes the things that I'm meant to do feel like more of a burden than anything else. I mean, perhaps you feel the same way. Maybe you, you get a long list like this and you're just like, man, I just want to go home and enjoy my Sunday afternoon and now it seems like there's all these things that I need to start worrying about and, and start doing. You know, thanks a lot for that sermon, James. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, if I, if I don't do these things, now I'm going to feel guilty about all of it. So I just want to finish this morning by reminding you about two of the key ideas that Paul has framed up these instructions with. The first is that this is what God wants from us in our union with Christ. And the second is that God will be faithful to make us holy in all of our being. All of these things are what God wants for us in our union with Christ. Now the thing is, these are actually all good things, aren't they? Respecting people, helping them, loving them, living in peace, growing in holiness. I think these are things that most of us would be pretty hard-pressed to identify as being anything other than good. God wants good things from us in our union with Christ. And just like God wanted me to do good things when I married Fiona, so too God wants good things out of our marriage to Christ. In fact, the purpose behind our creation in Christ, Paul tells us in Ephesians, is so that we might do good works. So what we do, so what so when we do what Paul is instructing us to do, we are actually doing what we were created for. They are not meant to be a burden, but rather the very thing that God created us to do, our purpose, if you will. And amazingly, they flow from our participation in Christ, from being in relationship with Him. The loving relationship that we have in Christ drives us and compels us to do good works. And this is the connection to our second key idea that Paul frames these imperatives with. God is making us holy as part of our union with Christ. God can't be connected to anything unholy. But we have no holiness of our own. All that we have is sin and brokenness and helplessness on our side. But in Christ, we are justified and made holy so that our character can be more and more like Jesus. 
by the power of his spirit, we being renewed and transformed day by day. And the life that this results in looks a lot like the instructions that Paul is giving here to the Thessalonians and to us. So if you're struggling to do any of these things, if they seem overwhelming or burdensome to you, I want to encourage you this morning to realize that these are the things you were created for. They are good, and God wants good things to come from our union with Christ. It's the purpose of our salvation. And as we live them out by the power of the Spirit, we're being transformed by God and becoming holy through His work in us. Our sinful flesh resists against these things at times. But if we can remember our union with Christ and that it is God's gracious work in us, then these things will be less of a burden and more something that we can indeed be thankful for. Because God is making us holy in our spirit, soul, and body. And when we know and believe this, then I believe that we'll be encouraged to live out these exhortations as part of the life that we have in Christ. Not as something that's burdensome and something that we regret and wish that we didn't have to do, but something that we do with rejoicing and thanksgiving just as Paul encourages us to do. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you that we are united to you through faith. Thank you, Father, we can share in all the blessings that you give to us. And I pray, Father, that we would take hold of that deeply and that the good works that Paul is instructing us to do here are part of our purpose and plan that you have for us. So please help us to love and esteem our ministers of the word. Please help us to care for the weak, Lord, to warn the timid, to encourage the feeble. Lord, help us to be patient and kind and generous. Lord, may we live out these words with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts because your Holy Spirit is working within us, making us more and more like you and filling us with the delight that comes in living for your glory. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.